Let's pray. Heavenly Father, do be with us now and as we reflect on Jesus' words with this woman so long ago, bring them right into our hearts and lives and this present moment, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today I want to talk about quenching our thirsts. We all thirst, we all have cravings, appetites, needs, hungers, and we want these thirsts to be satisfied. These are physical thirsts, just, you know, having a drink, having food, exercise. There are also psychological uh, thirsts, if you like, thirsts for social connection, for love and belonging, for the sense that we do things that are useful and that matter. Um, We thirst for all kinds of things, for knowledge, for wisdom, for beauty, for justice. We want to know the meaning of things. We want to live in the light of what is the highest and deepest and truest thing in all that is real. The Samaritan woman that Jesus meets at the well and the stories in John 4, which you have before you, I think she displays several of these thirsts. Firstly, the sheer necessity of quenching physical thirst. Uh, Perhaps you have never been thirsty in your entire life because you are one of those people who grew up always carrying a water bottle and always sipping from it. And you can't imagine even getting up to walk across to a tap to get a drink, let alone having to walk to a well to draw water. But like millions, this woman had a laborious job to do to get water day by day, to drink, to cook with and to wash with. Physical thirst needed daily work to quench. And if Jesus can give her, you know, water that quenches her thirst forever, she's keen. Jesus says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. And she says, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. I suggest this woman also has a thirst for love and belonging, a thirst she has perhaps not found it easy to satisfy. Uh, Jesus says to her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. And here's here's a terrible story right there in that brief answer, whether through you know, a series of deaths or divorces. This woman has no doubt lived through much heartbreak. Uh, But some need keeps drawing her into new relationships with men, even if they're irregular and immoral ones. The man you now have is not your husband. Uh, Something that she kind of elided, she skipped over in saying, I have no husband. Lastly, it seems, though, this woman has a thirst also to hear the views of a prophet. Uh, When Jesus shares what he knows of her life in a surprising way, in a perhaps supernatural and prophetic way, the woman says, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. And she has a question for a prophet, a question about the true worship of God. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now, she's not merely operating 
at the level of the physical or even the social and psychological. She has a spiritual life and takes her chance to quiz a prophet when she meets one. Now, although she is in a very different social position to Nicodemus with respect to Jesus, I don't know if you were here and you remember in John 3, Jesus had a conversation with a fellow called Nicodemus and he was, he was a Jew and he was a very kind of well-placed Jew, kind of a, a member of the Jewish ruling council, a respected, dignified chap. Uh, but here we have someone very different, a Samaritan woman of dubious respectability. And yet, whether it's with Nicodemus, uh, the high-up Jew, or the Samaritan woman, the kind of person you might easily overlook, Jesus still engages both of them, him and her, on a topic that matters for everybody. That is, your relationship with God. uh, This woman is surprised that Jesus would address her at all. She said to him, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Because, as John helpfully explains, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. This is a historical bad blood. Jesus pushes, though, straight past the propriety of his request. And indeed, he pushes straight past the whole issue of her giving him a drink of water. And he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. That is quite a statement. It's at once kind of puzzling, but also intriguing and seems to be full of great promise. And so I want to really just slow down and focus on that. And I want to ask these three questions. What is Jesus saying here? What does it mean? Secondly, is it true? Is there any reason to think he actually has something to offer? And thirdly, then if so, if we... If he has got something to offer, can we receive it? I mean, he's offered it to her, but is it open to you? Let's, let's take these questions one by one. Firstly, what is Jesus saying? I think in a nutshell, Jesus is offering this woman a communion with God, fellowship with God, a relationship with God. Jesus is picking up images from the Old Testament where God is described as the living water that quenches our thirst. Jeremiah 2, uh, verse Uh, 13, the Lord says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Here is a condemnation of Judah's idolatry there, uh, turning away to worship gods other than the Lord. And worshipping the Lord is drinking from the spring of living water. But worshipping idols is an artificial and a failed substitute for that. These idolatrous practices, it's like you've dug up a hole by human hands. It's trying to imitate the real thing but cannot achieve it. It's broken. It cannot quench the thirst that we have for the true God, the spring of living water. And so when Jesus says, whoever drinks the water I give them, will never thirst. He's saying that he is the source of the connection with God, the communion with God, the satisfaction in God that true worship consists in. On the Bible's view, we do have many appetites, but our deepest or highest appetite is for God. 
Uh, Our Old Testament reading from Psalm 42 opens with these famous words, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go? When can I go and meet with God? Now, we do live in an age that is in some ways proud to have gotten rid of God, at least in a country that seems proud to do that. Uh, I have this vivid memory, um, I went and looked it up again, of journalist Paul Tui writing about a conversation he had with a group of Afghan women in Indonesia who were looking to come to Australia. They were asking him about Australia. And he said to them that the greatest freedom Australia offers is the freedom not to believe in God. So he says, we more or less got rid of him. He was not required. But is God really not required? Is it enough to be prosperous, educated, free and secular? Can we build satisfying, meaningful, happy lives without God? Can we form, for the long run, coherent and stable Societies with enough shared moral vision for solidarity. Can we do this without God, without uh, a shared source of values like justice and equity, goodness and beauty and love? Such things which, historically, we have found in God. Can we quench our spiritual thirst with consumer goods and sport and travel and work and the arts and good lunches and writers' festivals and book clubs, can it be done? Now, since you are here in church, my guess is you think, no. God does give us something that none of these things can replace. Uh, We've heard from Ayan Hirsi Ali lately. If you've been reading my columns, she was a Muslim who turned into an atheist and recently she has turned... Uh, to Christianity, to to going to church. And she says about this, I've turned to Christianity because I ultimately found life without any spiritual solace unendurable. Indeed, very nearly self-destructive. So, there is, I guess, the meaning of the word, but we come then to the question, well, if there is really a thirst... Is there such a thing as living water? Or is God really just an imaginary solace for those unfortunate enough to experience this longing, this lack, this thirst? Well, to that, I secondly want to say that the testimony of those who come to Christ may help you and I think that actually Jesus does offer something real. If you're standoffish and wondering... Can this be taken seriously, this offer of Jesus, this claim of Jesus? Let me, let me give you exhibit one. I'll give you two. One ancient, one modern. Exhibit one is the Apostle Paul. If you uh, read the letters of Paul in the New Testament, especially, say, 2 Corinthians or Philippians, I think as outstanding examples, these are the letters of a man who has found not just something, but he's found everything in Jesus. Uh, Philippians 1.21, to me, he writes, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, he says, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, 
whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength, that is Jesus. It's very hard to read Paul and think, ah, he's just having himself on. He's just imagining it all. Paul, he is not crazy, but he is overflowing with gratitude, joy, conviction about Jesus. Prayer in Jesus' name. He has found something in Jesus, something real. That's exhibit one from the ancient world. Here's exhibit two from the modern world, a guy called Nabil Qureshi. Nabil Qureshi was raised as a devout Muslim in the US. He converted to Christ as a medical student after a long engagement with a Christian who he was studying with. And he did this at great personal cost due to the impact that it had on relations with his Muslim family and friends. And here is what he says about the moment that he, he had the Quran in one hand, the Bible in the other, and he said, I need, I need some spiritual nourishment, some spiritual help, some spiritual you know, thirst-quenchingness. Uh, the Quran, which he tried first, disappointed him. He opened the Bible and began reading the Gospel of Matthew, and he got to the words of Jesus, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And he writes... The words were like a current sent through my dead heart, electrifying it once more. This was what I was looking for. It was as if God had written these words in the Bible 2,000 years prior, specifically with me in mind. I continued reading fervently. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not blessed are the righteous, but blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I hunger and thirst for righteousness. I do, but I can never attain it. God will bless me anyway. Who is this God who loves me so much, even in my failures? Tears flowed from my eyes once more, but now they were tears of joy. I knew that what I held in my hands was life itself. This was truly God's word, and it was as if I was meeting him for the first time. I began pouring over the Bible, absorbing every word as if it were water for my parched soul, a soul that had never before drunk from the fountain of life. Now, perhaps like me, you recognise something of that experience, finding in Christ and in the Scriptures a word from God, a cool drink of life. Some evidence to suggest Jesus has got something to offer if you're wavering about trying to take him up on his offer. Thirdly and lastly then, how can we receive this living water? Jesus says to the woman, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Let's just take that as a program for action and think it through. There are two things that we must know. Firstly, the gift of God. This gift is presented to us by Christ in different ways. And as we've you know, been working through the Gospel of John, we've seen Jesus do a few things. One, uh, turn water into wine. We've seen Jesus work this Amazing transformation in a way that saves the day 
at a wedding. This is the gift. This is, some, this is a sign of the gift. It's something enriching. It's something um, that comes to the rescue. It's something wonderful. Uh, in John 3, it's described as new birth by the Holy Spirit. Here in John 4, it's described as living water. One uh, way that John's Gospel probably names it most directly is eternal life. By that, it means life with God, life uh, that knows God and is known by God. A new life that is a transformed life that God works in us through his spirit in order that we might be forgiven of sin, delivered from God's wrath and become God's children. This is the gift. And the giver of the gift is Jesus, uh, or God in Jesus, because Jesus brings the gift from his father. The Samaritan woman knows Jesus as the Jew who asked her for a drink, very surprisingly, and then as a prophet. But at the close of the conversation, when she speaks about the Messiah as someone, you know, yet to come, waiting in the wings, perhaps one day, Jesus says, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. No more waiting in the wings. God's promised king, the son, the saviour is here. Now, can I suggest that you and I draw near to God by contemplating, knowing the gift and the giver, Jesus Christ. And to do this, to contemplate the gift and the giver, I think we need to slow down. We need to slow down enough to be able to open our Bible with some leisure if we can manage that. That is a challenge. I recognise this. But slow down. Open your Bible and zero in about what that Bible tells you about the gift and the giver as you read through the scriptures. As you do this, find ways that help you sit with and meditate upon and soak in and contemplate the word of God to you in the Bible. The word of God about knowing him through his son. Now, when I do this, I find it useful to kind of tune up, if you like, by, by praising God. Uh, by saying to myself the words of an old hymn or a song, I find it easy to, easier to kind of contemplate the scriptures by picking a verse that stood out to me and just writing it out in a notebook. Just slow down and write it out and let that verse soak in. Memorise it, perhaps. Uh, read perhaps some devotional notes. Uh, there are Plenty of books at the Kurong Bookshop that will help you to, day by day, open up the Bible and it will just give you something to stimulate your thought. Maybe you can write out in a journal some thoughts or some prayers that arise. But this practice of knowing the gift and knowing the giver in the Scriptures, remembering, reflecting upon, opening yourself up to him, if you want to drink this living water, here I'm suggesting... This is a way to draw near to the well. Uh, thirdly, ask Jesus. There's the, the program. If you knew the gift and who it was that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him. So ask him. Uh, if you've slowed down and zeroed in and read and contemplated the gift and the giver, this prepares you to turn to him in prayer. Prayer arises from contemplation, which attends to what God has said. The word 
our contemplation of the word, our meditation upon it, and the prayer that flows from it. We ask for what God has offered us in his word, which we've read about and meditated on, but we want it to be ours. In all the circumstances of our life, we want it to come in and shape the way we think and feel and what we want and what we do. Jesus gives us then this living water, the communion with God that satisfies our deepest thirsts. To those who come to him, Jesus says, indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is a mighty promise, a mighty image. And notice the becoming. It will become. Now, this, I suggest, will take time. It will take time for the living water that you drink to become a spring welling up in you. It's not going to happen like that. I don't think this verse promises a miraculous shortcut to a constant blissful experience of God. Nor do I think that the discipline of knowing the gift and knowing the giver and asking for that drink is simple or straightforward. It does call for straining and striving for intention and persistence. But this this is what... God wants for you and what God invites you to. Isaiah 55, 1. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. Jesus goes back to this invitation in John 7, a few chapters time. He's in public this time in Jerusalem. And he says, on the last and greatest day of the festival, he says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within me. It's a mighty promise to take hold of, but let's pray that we we can do that. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are challenged by Jesus' words and we want to ask that we could know the gift that he brings, know him as the giver, And as we see these things for what they are, to ask for the gift. And we pray, Lord, that we might be able to testify that we have received it, that we have uh, quenched our thirst on the living water that is communion with you, our deepest desire, our deepest need. So we pray this central and precious thing in Jesus' name. Amen.